Today's second Bible reading is from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. The passage is on the screen and also on page 1235 of the Pew Bible. Colossians chapter 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of God. Amen. And may God bless to us the reading of his word. I'm just going to be preaching this morning on the first four verses of this passage. So I'm going to pray and then I might read them out again. But let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you because you have first come to us. You have come to us through the prophets over many hundreds and thousands of years, but most especially you have sent your Son, the true image of who you are. And in him we have seen your glory, the glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father. And we thank you that he has not been silent, but that he has given us this word by his spirit. 
that we may know you and understand you, even as you wish to be understood. And we pray that all of us, those who preach and those who hear, would submit to the authority of your word and take it and receive it. And by your Holy Spirit, be blessed in our innermost hearts and express it in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us just read these words here from the Apostle Paul. Verses 1 to 4 of that passage. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. If we're being honest with ourselves as believers in Jesus, we largely, and sadly too often, live by what we see. We live by what we see. And that is not simply true of our daily life. It is true even of our walk with Jesus himself. We think that the main sense that God has given us is sight. And the reason that flows from that. Instead of what Martin Luther called the main sense of faith, and that is the ear. Hearing what God has said. But instead we live by what we see. And this leads so often to a warped perspective, doesn't it? About what is happening in our lives, even as Christians. What is happening in our churches. What is happening as we interact with the world. We are so often overcome by disappointment because of what we see. We live with vastly reduced hope because of what we see. It is all the easier and more inevitable that we'll be entangled in worldliness because that is what we see, the world. And as a result, because we calculate according to the world and our horizons are only the ones that we see, we miscalculate. The largest and most important piece of the puzzle that confronts us is missing. And so Jesus Christ, even Jesus Christ himself, even those of us who take his name as our own and are called after him. We get things wrong. We misunderstand and we don't think that he is enough. In some ways, because we're going completely by what we see, he seems to be the wrong solution to the things that we see, to the problems that we have. And that was certainly true of the Colossians that Paul was writing to. That simple and wholehearted and spirit-led trust in Christ as all in all, outside of which there is no blessing and no comfort and no joy, did not seem enough. 
And they thought that they were being very spiritual by adding things to what Christ had revealed and to what Christ had said about himself. And we too often fall into that trap, thinking that we are so spiritual in all the extra knowledge and all the extra rules and plans and devices and schemes that we add. But actually we're being very, very earthly. We're being very, very worldly because we've forgotten that we are not living by what we see. But we are to set our minds and set our hearts on things above, where Christ is, where our Saviour is. So what we want, I want to look at with you this morning in these verses is what does it mean to set our hearts on things above? That's what it says there in verse 1, doesn't it? Set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's why we read that wonderful passage from Acts, which is talking about the ascension of Jesus Christ. We so often, don't we, talk a lot, and we should, about the death of Jesus on the cross for us. We rejoice every Sunday, and especially on Resurrection Sunday, we rejoice in the resurrection. And we earnestly long for his coming again. But sometimes we don't think enough about the reality of the ascension and what it means as his people living in this world to be trusting and living in a one that we do not see. And yet, in whom we are to set our hearts, to set our eyes upon him, even though we do not see him, as we look at his word. So let's look then here, in these opening verses of chapter 3 of Colossians, at why we must set our heart on things above. And I think the first thing we see here in the first two verses is we set our hearts on things above, because that is where the risen Christ is. Since then, it says there at the beginning of verse 1, since then you have been raised with Christ. So we're talking here about the risen Christ, not simply risen from the dead, but risen now to a place of glory and honour, sovereignty and power. And what a wonderful way here to describe what it is to be a Christian. Notice there, what are we? We are those that have been raised with Christ. What a wonderful description of what it means to become a Christian, to be those who have been raised with Christ. Do we think enough about that? You know, we often talk about being a Christian is to be forgiven, and that's a wonderful thing. Being a Christian is one to have decided that Jesus is Lord and that he will be your Lord, and that's a wonderful thing. To have been saved from your sins and joining God's family. But just think of the totality of that. If you are a believer this morning, you are one that has been raised with Jesus Christ. That same power, that same life that raised him from the grave and raised him up to a place of glory. You share in that. You have gone from a place of death and darkness into life and light. That is all that you are now. That really is who you are. 
You are not governed by the things that you see, but you have been raised with the risen Christ himself and all the glory and wonder of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension into heaven marks the power and the reality of what has happened to you as his people. And so, Paul sees it as self-evident. Set your hearts then on things above, where Christ is. If he has been raised and you have been raised with him, then it follows, doesn't it? Set your hearts where he is. He's not just using a metaphor here. We like to use these symbols in our Christian language, in our Christian walk, don't we? You know, living a higher life, living above, being born from above. And, and that's all true in one sense. But Paul is being quite profoundly literal here too. Jesus has literally gone into heaven. And we, therefore, are to look to above. I mentioned earlier that I used to be a, a language teacher, a Latin teacher at school. And when I was training to be a teacher, I had to do the classes at Melbourne Uni with, um, you had to do methods, and my methods were history and Latin, and so I had to go to the classes where they taught you how to teach languages other than English. And I remember the, the lecturer was a very good lecturer, and she taught us several words in various languages through all sorts of wonderful games and lessons and so on. But one lesson that she taught me stuck with me in all through my teaching career, and that is, there you are, you're a teacher, you're in front of the class, you've got your whiteboard, you want all the class to look at you, and you want to teach them some new grammar, some new set of endings, some new vocabulary for the language that you are teaching them, and you write it all up on the board, and then you talk to the class, and what happens? All the class look at you as you're teaching and speaking to them. And she said, that's not what you want, is it? You've just written a whole lot of things up on the board. And so she said, when you see all the class looking at you, you do this. You turn and you look at the board yourself. And being such willing students, of course, they're always such willing students in a language class, aren't they? But they all turn with you. And all their eyes look at the thing that you are trying to teach. And that is what Paul is telling us to do as believers, isn't he? saying, you have been raised with Jesus Christ. That is the thing that I want to placard before you. That is the thing I'm writing on a big cosmic whiteboard for you all. You have been raised with Christ and therefore do not look at what you see, but look to where he is, where he is seated at the right hand of God. And what do we mean when we say he's seated? Well, we certainly don't mean that he's passive. We certainly don't mean that he's doing nothing. But who sits in heaven? Who's the only one who can sit in heaven? The Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, God himself. Everyone else must stand. He sits because he is in a power. He is in authority. He is on his throne. He is seated above and his plans are above and beyond and encompass and overrule all the things that you see. For he is seated in power and in glory. And that is why we are to set our mind. It says it again in verse 2, doesn't it? Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. If that is the case, then your mind is to be utterly directed 
by the reality that Jesus is the King in heaven above. We may not see fully it all fleshed out on earth below, but the Lord's Prayer teaches us that that will come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we are to set our minds and to frame our minds according to him who is in heaven. And Paul talks about this all the time in all of his letters, doesn't he? I think particularly in Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Putting others ahead of yourselves, because what did Jesus do? He made himself nothing. And he was obedient even to death, to the shameful slave-like death of the cross. In obedience. And so his name is above every name. He put all things ahead of himself. And that is the mind of the one who is above. And so we are to set our minds on things above, not on things below. Now what does it mean, this distinction between things above and not on earthly things? Well, I don't think he's saying that things that you can touch or handle are necessarily evil, that the material world is evil and only the spiritual world is good. That's not what he is saying here, because what we remember back in Genesis, what did God say? He looked upon all that he had made, things you could see and touch, and behold, it was very good. It was good. God's creation. That's not the distinction he's talking about here. He's talking about the things which are associated with Jesus the King, with the fact that his rule has begun already. And that one day we will see it. And that there is a life associated with that. A life that only makes sense if we believe that Jesus is on the throne. And that the things that we see do not determine everything. But we're putting off, no matter how attractive and powerful and impressive or threatening the things that we see look, we are putting them aside. We are putting them off. And we are putting on the things of Jesus Christ. Because we understand that he is the ascended Lord. And that's expressed to us in the rest of the passage, isn't it? What are the earthly things that Paul is talking about here? Well, he's talking, isn't he, about sexual immorality. says there in verse 5. Impurity, lust, greed. We had that wonderfully shown, didn't we, in the children's talk. Those things that are to be put off especially deceit and lies and sins of the tongue. Anything which is against the truth and against kindness and graciousness with our lips, they are the things that we are to put off. But what are the things that are of above? What are the things that show that Jesus really is the King? Well, it is shown when we are kind in this cruel world when we are faithful in this faithless world, when we are chaste and careful in our morals and in our desires in this corrupt and covetous and immoral world. It is when we speak truth in a lying world. It is when we are patient in an impatient and hurried world. We live according to the one who is above. 
We are shaped by the things that are above. But you see here how these verses show us the urgency of this. The urgency of what it is to live, to set our minds on things above. You know, so often we just think about this purely in moral terms. Of course, there are, it is, these things are right and these things are wrong. Of course. But so often we just think about it in terms of what must be true today and what must be true tomorrow and what was true yesterday in a sort of timeless way. In the way that even other religions might talk about it. About doing what is right and avoiding what is wrong. But Paul says something even deeper here, doesn't he? He says, But though you may be scorned and mocked for kindness, for gentleness, for truth-speaking, for humility, for, for morality, for faithfulness and integrity, that you are actually the people of tomorrow. You are the people of the day of the coming of the glory of Christ when he comes again. That this is even now as it comes from faith in Christ, the first fruits of the new heavens and the new earth, even in this age. Because Christ is risen and he's seated in power. And so to live the Christian life is not simply to do the right thing. It is to do the thing of above. It is to do the heavenly thing. It is to do that which must be true if Jesus is on his throne, if he is really king. And we must have that conviction, mustn't we? Because the temptations of our own corrupt nature and of the world around us are too strong if we are simply to rely upon our own moral strength. We have to be founded in the one who is from above and set our minds upon him. But we have great encouragement to do that as well, don't we? Because we see there, secondly, there in verse 3, that not only is Christ above, and so we set our minds to where he is, but secondly we see that he keeps our life there too. He keeps our life safe there. Our life, which is no longer found in the things that we see, but in Christ who has gone above, is also kept safe there by him. In fact, according to Paul, our life below is no more. Notice there what it says at the start of verse 3. For you died. You died. You died to that whole preoccupation with the things that you see. You died to this world. That's profound, isn't it? But even more profound is where our life then is. Our life is now hidden with Christ in God. So your life, your true life, has gone up with Jesus Christ. You have been risen together with him. So even as he rose to new life, so you have. And it's gone with him. And now that is where your life is. Your actual life. You see, if you don't believe that, you're going to calculate everything about the Christian life wrong, aren't you? But that is actually where your life is. And look at where it is. 
It's not only hidden in Christ, which is an incredible thought, but it is hidden with Christ in God. So that life which had a common source with Christ is now in Christ, in God himself. In God himself, and it's hidden in him. Now, what do we mean by that word hidden? Well, in Paul's day, there were lots of people who talked about having special hidden knowledge. You know, they were cut above everyone else. They had the secret. They had the the key to all things. They had special revelation. And there are still people who talk that way as well today. That somehow they have the true inner life and others don't. That's not what Paul is talking about here, though. It's not some special hidden knowledge, some special hidden ceremony, some sort of cult-like reality. No. It is hidden for a time, not by nature, but for a time. It is hidden according to God's purposes for now. Just like those disciples in Acts 1 had to watch their Lord leave them and yet still be with them. Incredible, isn't it? That he leave and yet still be with them. But he left them. And so there's a hiddenness to our life right now. It's not immediately apparent. It's hidden. Not because we are somehow special or different or superior, but it's actually hidden to make us humble. It's actually hidden to make us dependent on God. That you are simply to trust him with your life. That he has it hidden in himself. And then therefore your hope and your dependence and your assurance is founded in him and not in yourself. It's founded in him. We hide things not just to keep them hidden, don't we, but to keep them safe. You remember that when Frodo is given the ring in the Lord of the Rings. And Gandalf tells him to keep it secret, keep it safe. This is precious. Keep it safe. We've got something far more precious than the ring. We've got that eternal life that Christ has won for us. And he's keeping it secret and he's keeping it safe. And you must calculate on that truth and not on the things that you see. And isn't there wonderful assurance in that? Because so often as we walk the Christian life, we we become discouraged, don't we? Because we look at our sins and we look at our weaknesses and we look at the threats in our own nature and our own hearts against our walk with Christ and we think, how is it possible for us to stay the course? How is it possible for us to proceed to the end? There's a wonderful story about John Bunyan. I'm sure many of you have heard of John Bunyan. who wrote that famous work, Pilgrim's Progress. Well, perhaps more than most Christians, he really suffered at this point. He really suffered with a lack of assurance, with a lack of confidence in his faith. It's surprising to realize that. Sometimes great Christians have great struggles. But you know when the breakthrough came? He was walking home one night... And a certain sentence fell upon his heart. And that was, your righteousness is in heaven. Your life is in heaven. And then he says, with the eyes of my soul, I saw Jesus at the Father's right hand. 
And he said, there is my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say to me, where is your righteousness? Where is your life? For it is always right there before him. Jesus is at the right hand of God. Your life is hidden with him. It was lovely to hear in the prayer we had earlier about where we are to put our treasure in a place where it doesn't corrupt. I think that's not just talking about our priorities, although it is talking about that. It's not just talking about what we should most value in life. It's talking about your very soul, about your very life. Where are you putting it? Where is it resting? Where is your confidence for it? It is in the one who is above. Nothing can touch him. Nothing can take it from him. Your life is hidden, safe with Christ in God. Remember that and live by faith in that. Not in the things that you see, not in the threats that you see against your life, your spiritual life as well as any other part of your life, but the fact that it is all hidden with Christ in God. How glorious is that? But then we see finally too, don't we, in verse 4. The ascension leads to the second coming. And we need to calculate on that. Why do we set our minds on things above? Because thirdly, that is where, it is from there that Christ will bring our glory. We see there in verse 4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Setting your mind on the things above is not just some moral principle, though it is that. It's living in the reality of the history of what God is doing with you. He has come. He has saved you. But he then will save you one day too. Your salvation is not yet complete it is sure and certain, but it is still to be finalized when he comes again. So therefore, this is not the time of our glory, even though it is a time we, are, we can be utterly secure in Christ. But we set our minds on the things above because we are proceeding forward to that time when our glory will be revealed. Notice here the progression. First, we rose with Christ. Then Christ took our life and hid it in God. But now, who is he? He is our life. Our life is completely identified with the one who has bought it for us. See, Christ is not simply the one who does all the actions of our salvation. He is our salvation. The very person of Christ is what we're saved for. We're saved for him and in union with him and for union with him. And so our glory will come with him. He has hid your life in himself, not because he's just into secrecy for secrecy's sake, but it's only for a time because the time of that secrecy will end. And you need to calculate on that today and set your mind on things above. See, Christ now is now not merely the one who we share new life, he is the one who is our life, yet we do not see him. There's a tension there, isn't there? Here is the one who is our life, yet we do not see him. Everything worthwhile 
belongs to him, yet we do not see him. The most important thing about every one of you as you trust in Jesus Christ, the most important thing about you is completely obscured from those who only calculate by the things that they see, by the earthly horizon. The most important thing about you. And you can too easily forget it as well. So we, we know, therefore, that our glory is not now. It's being treasured up for us to be revealed when he comes again. That the final enjoyment of everything that God has, yes, we have a foretaste of it now, but it's being treasured up for an eternal enjoyment when he comes again. And you think about that, because if you're thinking about getting your glory now, you're in very uncharted and uncertain waters, aren't you? And even the world that does not see beyond the world knows this, don't they? Even those who trust most in the things that they, say, they see and the things that they have, they also know how uncertain those things are too, don't they? That's why you have so much superstition in the world, don't you? People trusting in a an amulet or a talisman with some saint on it. People trusting in a totem or a voodoo doll. They know that their own lives, even though they entrust everything to their own lives that they see now, they know that in the end, while they try and satisfy their eternal hearts on the things that they see, they know that their lives can't do it. And so they grasp for things outside of their lives, whether it's a totem or an amulet or their superannuation or their holiday home or whatever it is, their health care plan. They grasp these things and see them as things that they can invest their life in. But we have the true thing to invest our life in. Because we know for sure and delight in the fact that our life is not in ourselves. But that our life finally is coming. The glory of it is coming when Christ returns. We don't need to trust to the sandbags that people use to shore up their lives against the overwhelming tide of eternity. For we have the sure ark in which we may entrust our eternal lives. The ark of the covenant extraordinaire, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's our ark in the storm. And here's the one that will land us safely and bring our glory. And as I close, I just want to say a few things to you, not just as individuals, but as the church. If this is true, if your glory is not now, and your life is not found below, but it is found in him, the Lord and Saviour of all things, then that should dictate our life as the church, shouldn't it? It dictates what we do when we come together in public worship, doesn't it? You look further down in Colossians 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Why is it that we make preaching central? Why is it that we devote ourselves to prayer? Why is it that we seek to sing praise to God? That's what it says there. Let admonishing one another with all wisdom as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts. 
Why is it that in amidst all the grandeur of religious observances across the world, what do we do when we wish to remember our Lord? We pass around bits of bread and little cups. We gather around the Lord's table in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. What is all that teaching you? The foolishness of preaching, the plainness of the Lord's Supper, the simplicity of baptism, praying to someone that we don't hear immediately an answer, but we still pray in confidence and in trust. What is it all teaching you? It's teaching you that your life, not just as individuals, but your life as the church, is found elsewhere. It's found somewhere that the world doesn't understand. It's found in God, in Christ who is in God in heaven. And that he is then showing you these things and giving you these things that you may be patient and wait with expectant hope for when your glory will appear, when your glory will be made known. And it will be a glory that far transcends any glory of this life and of this world. But are we a patient people? I don't mean by that a passive people. We shouldn't be passive. We shouldn't be complacent. But we should be patient. And we should be dependent on the things that we do not see. And not utterly governed in our church life as well as individually by the things that we see. We shouldn't be governed by that. We shouldn't be governed by the fact that sometimes we have empty pews or people that won't hear us or that there are still struggles in all of your lives. We shouldn't be governed by that, but we should be governed by the one who is bringing, who has treasured up your life and is bringing your glory. That is the one we are governed by. And that is how we understand ourselves as the people of God in the world by the reality of Christ who is bringing our glory. Well, may God bless you here at Surrey Hills. It is lovely to be with you here today. May you, I pray for each and every one of you, that you put your trust in the risen Christ, not in the things that you see, but in the one who has your true life treasured up and will one day reveal it to you in all its glory. Amen. Let's pray.